Well, good morning, brethren. Good to see all of you this morning. I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles, once again, please, to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and the text that we're going to be considering together this morning uh, is verses 5 through 9a. The subject that we'll be looking at this morning has to do with putting sin to death, or otherwise known theologically as the mortification of sin. So we're going to be considering together that subject from this passage. Follow along with me as as I read. You're the Apostle Paul, again under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says these words, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander and abusive speech from your mouth, do not lie one to another. Well, before we look together at this passage of God's Word, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you this morning for your Word, and we thank you for the privilege of being able to read it together, to have it in our own language. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you've given us your Spirit to Help us to understand the things that are written herein. And uh, you've said in your word that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and that it's profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look into this passage in particular this morning, that you would accomplish each one of those things as you see fit in our own hearts and lives. We thank you again for this time together. Bless it, we pray. We would ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, I would like to begin our Sunday school lesson this morning by sharing with you a brief quote from A.W. Pink, taken from his work on, on the doctrine of sanctification. And in addressing this whole issue and the importance of holiness in the life of the believer, uh, Pink writes these words. He says, He who thinks to come to enjoyment of God without holiness makes him an unholy God and puts the highest indignity imaginable upon him. There is no alternative. We must either leave our sins or our God. We may as easily reconcile heaven and hell as easily take away all difference between light and darkness, good and evil, as procure acceptance for unholy persons with God. While it be true that our interest in God is not built upon our holiness, it is equally true that we have none without it. Many have greatly erred in concluding that because piety and obedience are not meritorious, they can get to heaven without them. 
the free grace of God towards sinners by Jesus Christ by no means renders holiness needless and useless. Christ is not the minister of sin, but the maintainer of God's glory. He has not purchased for His people security in sin, but salvation from sin. The Apostle Paul in Romans 6 and verse 1 asks the very important question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He then continues in the following verse with a firm statement to the contrary, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? But sadly, you and I live in a day when the whole subject of mortification of sin has for the most part disappeared from consideration from among those who who profess to bear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of striving against sin has for many been replaced with a desire for carnal ease and self-denial has been replaced with self-gratification. For many, a perverted concept of the grace and mercy of God has effectively dulled their conscience, enabling them to be able to tolerate sin in their lives without any sense of guilt or anguish of soul. In a sermon preached by John Flavel from the text found in Galatians 5 and verse 24, which says, "...they that are Christ have crucified the flesh." with the affections and lusts, he says these words, and I quote, If they that be Christ have crucified the flesh, then the number of real Christians is very small. It is true if all that seem to be meek, humble, and heavenly might pass for Christians, the number would be great. But if no more must be accounted Christians than those who crucify the flesh, with its affections and lusts, oh, how small is the number. For how many there be under the Christian name that pamper and indulge their lusts, that secretly hate all who faithfully reprove them, and really love none but such as feed their lusts by praising and admiring them. How many that make provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts, who cannot endure to have their corruptions crossed. How many are there that seem very meek and humble until an occasion be given them to stir up their passion, and then you shall see in what degree they are mortified. The flint is a cold stone till it be struck, and then it is all fiery. I know the best of Christians are mortified, but in part. And strong corruptions are oftentimes found in the most eminent of believers, but they love them not so well as to defend and countenance them, nor dare they secretly hate such as faithfully reprove them, as many thousands that go under the name of Christian do. Well, in our study last week of verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul reminds these believers in Colossae of several wonderful truths concerning their present condition in Christ. He says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. 
For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And so with these particular realities in mind, he then continues to practically instruct them as to how these truths are to affect their daily walk, both on the one side negatively and then on the other side positively. In other words, since we have died to the flesh, and since you and I as believers have been raised up with Christ, and since our lives are hidden with Christ in God, and we have the glorious prospect of one day being revealed with Him in glory, how then are we to live in light of these realities? Well, Paul begins here in verses 5 through 9a, by addressing this particular question negatively. And that is that we as believers are to mortify or we are to put to death the old man by ruthlessly dealing with remaining sin. And specifically, he mentions here in the text, sins of uncleanness and lust, sins of wrath and malice, as well as sins of falsehood. And from there, Paul continues in verses 9b through 17 to positively remind these believers of the many Christian characteristics and graces that they are to close themselves with or that they are to put on. And Lord willing, next week, uh, Thomas uh, will examine with us uh, that in our study next Sunday morning. And so as we consider then the text before us, I would like you to note with me in the first place the command here that is stated. The command stated. Now mention has already been made not only here in uh, the letter to the Colossians, but in many other places throughout the Word of God of the radical transformation that takes place in the life of the sinner at the moment of their conversion. In verse 3, Paul has just finished pointing out the fact that these believers have died and that their life is hidden with Christ in God. You might remember back in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11 that Paul there reminded these believers that the body of the flesh has been removed. It has been taken away by the circumcision of Christ. And here in chapters 3, verses 9 through 10, Paul says that they have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is stated elsewhere in passages such as Romans 6, 6 and 7, Where Paul said to the believers at Rome that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Also in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are told that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And so what he's saying there in these passages is that when a sinner is born again, when a sinner is regenerated, when he has been made a new creature in Christ, the old man is not simply converted. It is not simply renewed. 
Rather, it has been replaced. It has been replaced by a new man. The old man refers to the old, unregenerate nature and its sinful ways. It describes the person that the believer was before he was saved, when he was totally depraved, unregenerate, dead in trespasses and sins, and walked according to the course of this world. But the new birth has changed all of that. The person that we once were is no more. The tyranny of sin has been done away with. Our nature has been changed. It has been transformed. We have been made a new creature in Christ. We are not merely the old creatures with a new side to our nature. No, we have been given a new heart. And that's the promise that God made back in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26 concerning the new covenant. When he said there that I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And so the new man is the person who has been regenerated. He is made pleasing to God through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His new nature is characterized now by godliness and by righteousness. He walks differently from the world and that he now walks in light of the truth of God's word. He loves God's law. He loves the Lord Jesus. He hates sin. And he has a deep desire after holiness. And though he's not yet perfected, he is spiritually alive and desires each day to be conformed more and more to the image of his Savior, all the while possessing the assurance that one day he is going to be made perfectly into that image. Now with these things in mind, the important question that must be asked then is this. Why do believers still sin if the old man has been replaced with the new man? Why do believers still sin if the old man has been replaced with the new man? Why does Paul here in our text say in verse 3 that you have died... And then in verse 5, he says, Therefore, because you have died, put to death. In the natural realm, we understand that when a person dies, he is no longer active in the sphere or realm to which he has died. His connection with the living has been dissolved. He has no further communications with those who live in that realm nor do those who are alive have any communication whatsoever with the individual who has died. The psalmist made that plain in Psalm 103, 15, and 16, where he says, As for man, his days are as grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. Then the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and the place acknowledges it no longer. And so with this analogy in mind, the person who lives in sin or lives to sin lives and acts in the realm of sin. It is the sphere of his life. It is the sphere of his activity. And that was true of every single one of us who are here believers 
prior to our conversion. That was the realm that you and I lived in. According to Romans 6, in our natural lost condition, Paul says that we were the bondservants of sin, that sin reigned in our mortal bodies, that we rendered obedience to the lusts of the flesh, that we presented our members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, And he says also that sin had dominion over us. But when we were born again, he continues on by saying that we died to sin. And as a result, we no longer live in that sphere. And being dead to sin again, according to Romans 6, means that the old man has been crucified and the body of sin has been destroyed. In other words, we no longer serve sin. We are justified from sin. We are alive to God and live to Him. Sin no longer reigns in our mortal bodies and does not lord it over us. We present ourselves to God and our members as instruments of righteousness to God. We are no longer under the dominion of sin, but rather now we as believers are under the dominion of God's grace. We are... We render obedience from the heart to the truth of God's word. And the fruit that we produce is unto holiness. And we have the assurance that the end is everlasting life. This is the decisive change that Paul has in view when he said back in verse 3 that you have died. It means that there has been a decisive and definitive breach with the power and the service of sin in the case of all those who have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. The person who has been begotten of God is one who does righteousness. They love and know God. They love those who are begotten of God, and they delight in and desire to keep the commandments of God. But in that same epistle, if you go from Uh, chapter 6 to chapter 7, Paul goes on to describe for us the conflict that ensues for the believer because of indwelling sin. Even Paul says concerning himself that I am carnal, sold under sin. He goes on to say in verses 23 and 24 that I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am. And then in verse 25 he continues by saying that I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh the law of sin. And so we see here in these references that sanctification is not only definitive in nature. It just does not come the moment an individual is regenerated. But Paul reveals to us here in this passage that it is also progressive. It implies that there is a need for constant vigilance in the believer's life against the encroachment of sin. And when we take into account the fact that sin yet dwells in the believer, and of the fact that he has not yet reached the goal that God has purposed for him, and that being perfect conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, the condition of the child of God is in this life not to be static in nature, 
Rather, it is one of constant progression. A progression that is both negative and positive in character. Negatively, as we're going to see here in our passage, we are to mortify sin. And positively, as we are going to see next week, we are to pursue after holiness and godliness. And so that brings us to the text before us this morning, which deals with the duty of the believer to mortify or to put sin to death. Paul says at the beginning of verse 5, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Other translations render this command this way. For instance, the King James says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. The ESV renders it, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And the NIV renders it, Put to death therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. In the Greek text, this statement begins with the word nekrao, which means to make dead, to put to death, or literally to kill. Here in the NASB, the translators have chosen the words consider as dead. Now this particular term nekrao, which Paul uses here, is in the active voice meaning that the subject, who are the Colossian believers in this instance, are to be the ones who are to carry this act out. And so he's saying to these Colossian believers, you consider as dead, mortify, or put to death. And this command is also not only in the active voice, but it's also in the imperative mood, which means that it is to be done without hesitation. It is to be carried out without any delay. It is something that is to be carried out now. In other words, the command that Paul gives here to mortify, to kill, or to put to death is not a mere suggestion that they act in such a way. Rather, it is an order with a sense of real urgency that is attached to it. In essence, he is saying to these believers, you make a conscious determination to put this to death, and you are to do it without any delay. Thus, Paul places this word at the very beginning of this statement, no doubt to emphasize the importance of what exactly it is that he's going to be telling them to do here in these next few verses. And what is it specifically that these believers are being commanded to put to death? What is the object of the mortification of the believer? Well, Paul goes on to identify that object by saying that they are to put to death the members of your earthly body. And here Paul uses a figure of speech known as metonymy. Metonymy is a figure of speech in which the name of an object or concept is replaced with a word that is closely related to or suggested by the original. For example, when we talk of a king or a queen, many times we refer to that individual as the crown. So when Paul speaks here of killing bodily parts or members of your earthly body, What he is referring to is the destruction of those sins that are actually associated with those members. 
For example, we notice an example of this if we look down in our text to verse 8, where Paul says, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. And so here is an example. Paul doesn't say that we are to mortify or put to death our mouth, our bodily mouth, but rather, he says, put to death those sins associated with the mouth. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, and lying. What Paul is calling for in this statement is the complete elimination of everything in the believer's life that is contrary to godliness. Now, unfortunately, there have been many throughout the course of church history that have acted on this command literally, and they have engaged in the dismemberment or mutilation of their bodies, believing that by that means, sin would be destroyed. No doubt, having done this, many such individuals have come to the realization afterward that their sin issue was never really resolved. And the reason why is because they did not deal with the problem at its source. And that problem is the human heart. This act of mortification that Paul commands here has as its object the sin and defilement that yet exists in the believer. And it has as its ultimate goal the complete and utter eradication of it. Our ultimate desire as believers is to be conformed in both flesh as well as spirit to the image of our Savior. As he was holy, harmless, and undefiled, and separate from sinners, so you and I as believers desire to be just like him. In 1 John 3, as the Apostle John contemplates that great day when Christ shall appear, and we shall be made like him, for we shall see him as he is, he continues in verse 4 with the words, Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself even as he is pure. A.W. Pink again says, and I quote, that it is not without good reason that God has expressed this duty of opposing sin and curbing its power by mortification or by putting to death. There is something peculiar therein beyond any other duty. There is intimated a great contest of sin for the preservation of its life. Every creature will do its utmost to preserve its being, and sin is no exception. Sin cannot be vanquished by gentle taps or half-hearted efforts to subdue it. The subjugation of indwelling sin is likened to a cutting off of right hands and plucking out of right eyes. It is the difficulties and severities of mortification which constitute the narrowness of that way which leads unto life, for it shuts out the unbridled indulgence of sinful affections. And so having seen that in the first place, the command here stated, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. 
Note with me now, secondly, the list of sins that Paul identifies as those sins that they are to mortify. And so let's note, secondly, then, the sins identified. Now, as we begin to go through these various sins, we have to understand that this is certainly not an exhaustive list of sins. Uh, There are many others that the Word of God deals with and addresses. The initial command certainly has in view all sin and is not limited only to these ones. But in the remainder of our text, Paul identifies these specific sins that they are to mortify. In verse 5, he begins by identifying several sins involving uncleanness and lust. He says, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. The first sin that's mentioned here in this list that these believers are to put to death is the sin of immorality. Paul uses the Greek word here, porneia, uh, which originally referred to any excessive behavior or lack of restraint. Eventually, however, it came to be associated with every kind of illicit sexual activity and indulgence outside of the marriage union. In contrast to the prevailing acceptance of all kinds of sexual sin in the ancient world at Paul's time, the scriptures outright prohibited any sexual activity outside of the bond of marriage. And on various occasions, Gentile believers had to be reminded of this. In Acts 15, 19 through 20, the Jerusalem Council determined to communicate to these Gentile believers that they needed to avoid immorality. To the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul expressed his horror over the fact that immorality was being tolerated there in the church, sexual sin that would make even the Gentile world blush. And so he commanded them in 1 Corinthians 6.18 that they were to flee from it. Immorality is the first sin mentioned in Galatians 5 and verse 9 in the list that the Apostle Paul gives there of sins in the flesh. And in Ephesians 5 and verse 3 it is identified as outright improper behavior for those who are the children of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3, Paul says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And so the first sin that Paul says that we are to mortify is the sin of immorality. The second that's listed here is the sin of impurity. Impurity. Now, other translations render this word perversion. Some of them render it filthiness. Others render it uncleanness. The Greek word used here, akatharsia, is a broad term that figuratively refers to moral uncleanness. And what this word describes is a filthiness of heart and mind by which the person is defiled. In other words, the individual that is given over to impurity is one who sees dirt in everything. 
This word was commonly used in the first century to refer to decaying matter, such as a body that was lying in a grave. The term that Paul uses here speaks more of internal moral filthiness rather than external immoral actions. It points to the evil thoughts and intentions of the mind. The Lord Jesus himself made reference to this particular kind of sin in Matthew 5 and verse 28, where he said that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. That's the sin of impurity. The third sin that's mentioned here in this list is the, is the word passion, the sin of passion. Now the word pathos describes an inward emotion aroused by some external object. In this case, this emotion is aroused by an impure object that promotes evil desires. And such desires will not rest until they are satisfied. As a result, a person is captive to and is the slave of his or her passions. They are driven and will not rest until the thing that they are most passionate about, passionate about is obtained. And so we are to mortify immorality, we are to mortify impurity, we are to mortify passion, and the fourth sin that the Apostle Paul mentions here is that we are to mortify evil desire, epithumia. This word is in itself a neutral term denoting strong desires or impulses, longings or passionate cravings that are directed toward a particular object. Now at times this word is used in scripture in a good sense, referring to those natural, legitimate, strong desires that God in his grace and mercy has given to us in a God-honoring way. But most of the time where this word is used in the New Testament, as in this particular case, it describes strong desires which are perverted and unrestrained, originating from our corrupt, sinful nature. Thus they are referred to here as evil desires. And the distinction between these two particular sins, passion and evil desires, is really not that great. In 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 5, Paul commands these believers not to live in lustful passion. And again, these two words are side by side. Evil desire and passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so this kind of behavior as well is completely inappropriate for the child of God. The fifth and last sin that he mentions here in this particular verse is the sin of greed. And Paul uses here the word pleonexia, which literally means to have more. It's translated elsewhere in Scripture as covetousness, and it describes a strong desire to acquire more and more material possessions, especially those possessions that have been forbidden by God in Scripture. It is a desire to have more 
irrespective of one's need. It describes an insatiable selfishness, something that a person is driven to achieve. The opposite of this particular word is the word contentment. When contentment replaces covetousness, covetousness cannot culminate in an act of sin. By mortifying covetousness, an axe is laid to a root cause of sin because greed is the root of all other sins listed here in verse 5. When one's heart is consumed with covetousness, desiring to have more of something, that particular thing becomes for that individual in reality the thing that that person worships above everything else. It becomes your God whom you end up serving. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 6 and verse 24 that it is impossible to serve God and mammon. When a person elevates selfish desire above obedience to God, that action in the words of the Apostle Paul here in our text amounts to nothing more than idolatry. But the next, the second group of sins that Paul mentions to be mortified are found here in verse 8. And those are sins of wrath and malice. He says to them, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. He says here that they are to put them all aside. Now, here in the second list, Paul uses a different term from what he used back up at the beginning of verse 5. Instead, he uses here a word meaning to take something away from its normal location and discard it out of the way. Figuratively speaking, speaking, the idea here is to cease doing what one was accustomed to doing and be done with it. In essence, Paul is saying here, stop doing these things, throw them off. Uh, This particular term that Paul uses here was used commonly back then to refer to competitive runners who would literally, before the start of the race, cast off most or all of their clothes and run completely naked in in the stadium. It's a word that means to remove one's clothes and to cast them off from you. This same word that Paul uses here is used over in Hebrews 12 and verse 1, where there the Hebrews were exhorted to lay aside every encumbrance or lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That, that command that he has there in mind has in mind those races that maybe Paul was very much familiar with. That laying aside of the clothes so that a person may run as fast as he can unhindered. And here the Apostle Paul is using that same word to speak figuratively of what we are to do spiritually speaking. And in the same manner as these athletes, we as believers are to cast from us anything that would impede 
our progress in sanctification. We are to lay aside those sins that so easily and quickly bog us down and impede our progress in the pursuit of holiness and run unhindered toward that mark that is set before us. And so in the context, what are those sins that we are to cast off? Well, the first sin that Paul here mentions under this second heading of sins of wrath and malice is the sin of anger. The word used here refers to a deep, smoldering, resentful bitterness. It speaks of the unsettled heart attitude of one who is perpetually angry, one who has anger residing all the time within his heart. And when he is provoked, anger is not created at that moment because it has already existed. Rather, his outburst reveals the continual state of his heart. And when when an individual makes him angry, that person has simply become the subject upon which that individual will vent that anger. this This state as well has no place in the life of the believer. Instead, James says that the child of God is to be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. This is a sin, the sin of anger, that every believer must put away. The second sin that Paul mentions here in verse 8 is the sin of wrath. Wrath. It's thumos. In contrast to anger, Wrath refers to a sudden outburst. While the first term suggests a more settled and abiding condition, which is less sudden and longer lasting, the second is marked by an immediate expression of strong displeasure or even rage. Uh, Wrath is likened to a straw fire. If you've ever set fire to a pile of straw, starts really fast, burns fast, burns hot, but then dies out very quickly. That's what this term wrath means. And once again, this sin is identified in Galatians 5 and verse 20 as one of the deeds of the flesh. And like anger, it too is to be put away. But Paul goes on in verse 8 to identify the third sin that is to be cast away, and that is the sin of malice. This word describes a mean-spirited or vicious attitude or disposition to another person or persons. Malice describes a malicious intent coupled with the desire to hurt someone else all the while rejoicing in it. Mr. Webster defines this term malice as a desire to cause pain injury, or distress to another, and implies a deep-seated, often unexplainable desire to see another suffer or experience pain, injury, or distress. That's malice. The fourth sin that's mentioned here that is to be cast off, Paul says, is the sin of slander. Slander is the utterance of false charges or misrepresentations that are designed to defame, to belittle, 
or to damage another person's reputation, causing them to fall into disrepute or to receive a bad reputation. In the wounding of someone's reputation by means of false and misleading statements. That is what it is. James refers to this over in James chapter 3 and verses 8 through 10 where he says, No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. The Greek word used here translated slander as blasphemia, from which we derive the English word blasphemy. Now when this word is used in relation to God, that is how it is rendered. But when it is used in relation to people, as it is here in our text, it is usually translated as slander. James just made it clear in James 3 that when we slander people, we blaspheme God in as much as He created men and women. Such actions for the believer are never to be engaged in. They are to be put away, Paul says. Human beings are to be treated with dignity because of the fact that they are image bearers of God. Therefore, our speech must not be marred by insults or disparaging remarks directed toward others. But then the fifth sin that Paul mentions here is abusive speech. Abusive speech. This kind of speech refers to words that are obscene. We might otherwise refer to them as filthy, dirty, or generally speaking, considered in poor taste. It has simply been defined as foul mouth abuse. That is what he is referring to with the word, words abusive speech. And such speech should never be tolerated by a believer. Paul referred to this in Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 4, where he said, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks." The Lord Jesus himself warned of the consequences of an unbridled tongue in this way when he said in Matthew 12, verses 35 and 36, that the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. So, brethren, we need to watch very carefully the things that we say. But then the third group of sins that he refers to here at the end of our text is the sin of lying. Paul concludes this list of sins that are to be put away or mortified by adding one more at the beginning of verse 9, and that has to do with the sin of falsehood.
And so our text concludes this morning with the words, do not lie to one another. Always tell the truth. Lying is never conducive to the child of God, as that is one of the chief characteristics given in Scripture of Satan. Jesus said to the Jewish crowd in John 8, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so when a believer lies, what he does effectively is he imitates Satan. He does not imitate God. Therefore, as a child of God, you and I are to reflect the image of our Father and that we are to always speak the truth and are committed to putting to death anything and everything that is contrary to that. Well, having seen then the commands stated and the sins identified, Let's close our time together then by looking just for a couple of moments at the reasons why we as believers are to do this. Why are we to mortify sin? Why are we to put sin to death? Our text begins this morning with the word, therefore. We've already mentioned at the beginning of our lesson that these words of Paul were a logical continuation of what he has already said in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. And there he reminded these Colossian believers that they have died to the flesh. He reminded them that they have been raised up with Christ. He reminded them that their lives are hidden with God in Christ and that they have the glorious prospect of one day being revealed with Christ in glory. And having reminded them of these glorious truths, he then says in light of these things, Therefore... Therefore, mortify your sin. Therefore, put to death all remaining sin. Cast it away from you. Have nothing to do with it anymore. You are new creatures in Christ. Therefore, live like it by mortifying sin and pursuing after righteousness. This, in essence, is what the Apostle Paul said to the Romans In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, when he said, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. But in addition to what Paul mentioned back in verses 1 through 4, he mentions two other reasons why sin must be put to death in their lives. And he mentions those reasons here in verses 6 and 7. He says, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. And so having given this first list of sins here, sins of uncleanness and lust, Paul then pauses before giving the rest and he gives two strong motivating reasons for mortifying our sin. The first reason here that he mentions is that sin brings God's judgment. 
he says, because of these things, that the wrath of God will come. God's wrath is the holiness of God stirred into action against sin. And all who are unbelievers will one day experience for themselves the full force of God's eternal wrath. John 3.36 says that for the ungodly, the wrath of God abides on him. And because of God's wrath will be poured out on account of these things, these sins that Paul has just mentioned, the believer should have absolutely no part in them. Sin always brings wrath. It never brings blessing. Now as believers in Christ, they have been delivered from the wrath to come. Paul again reminds the believers in Rome that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But though they have been delivered from the wrath to come, believers are still subject to the chastening hand of God. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son that He receives. Either way, the Word of God tells us that God will react to sin. For the wicked, His wrath will be experienced throughout all of eternity. For the righteous, His loving chastening. Either way, all who pursue sin are going to experience the consequences. The second and final motivating reason for putting sin to death that Paul mentions here is because sin is part of the believer's past. It is part of the believer's past. Paul mentioned this back in verse 3, and he points it out again here in verse 7. He says, In them you also once walked, when you were living in them. He reminds them that they have died to sin. That sin was a part of their past. But because of God's gracious, regenerating, and sanctifying grace in their lives, they are now dead to sin. And so in light of these truths, brethren, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall you and I, who are dead to sin, live any longer therein? Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we once again thank you for the privilege of being able to look into your word. And Lord, we pray that as we have considered these things, we pray that we might not only be hearers of them, but we pray that Uh, we might be doers of them. Lord, we pray that we might take these truths as it relates to the mortification of our sin and that we might put it away. That we would take up uh, the sword and fight against it. That we might crucify it. That we might cut those things off and discard it from us that would be displeasing to you. Lord, we thank you for the help of your Spirit. We thank you for the help of your word. We thank you for that armor that we have been given in order to accomplish that task. Father, we pray that we might be diligent in this matter. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless our time together as we look into these questions. We pray that you would continue to encourage our heart in these matters. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.